Well, there's several types of fear. There's uh, fear of the unknown. There's fear of the known. And then there are surprises that, uh, that scare you. I've always thought that if somebody breaks into our house, you know, I would respond like Chuck Norris. <clears throat> you know, just kind of ready. If you get surprised, you know, in the middle of your home, you're thinking someone's breaking in, that you're going to you know, respond in the way that you want to respond. Well, uh, I remember years ago, I was walking down the hall of our home at night, and I hear this sound that absolutely scared me. Daddy? That was it. Right in front of me. Walking down this black hallway, and I hear the sound. It could have been anything. But, oh, it scared me to death. One of our daughters was standing there. And instead of responding like Chuck Norris, I responded a little bit more like Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> ah! Scared me to death. And I think it's this same child that I told, you know, anytime you're afraid, you can just come into, come into our bedroom and just put your hand on me and just very, you know, gently wake me up and I'll come tuck you back in. And who knows, maybe she was on the way to do that and I absolutely mortified her even more. You think you're, you think you're a man until you're terrified by, uh, by a young child. I read about... You remember the storms we had several weeks ago? It reminded me of a story, a great story I heard about this, um, this little boy who was being tucked in by his mom, and he was afraid of the storm. And so he said, Mommy, can I sleep with you tonight? And she said, Well, she said, No, dear, I have to sleep with Daddy. And the little boy said, With Daddy? The big sissy. <laughs> Daddy can't even handle it. <laughs> Plato, Plato said these words. He said, We can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy is when men are afraid of the light. You know, you've probably brought your fears with you this morning. You maybe even saved them a seat. They're next to you. Um, their fears are important to us. And by that I mean we nurse them. We carry our anxieties around with us, you know, like we need to give them a driver's license. They are significant individuals in our lives. They, they don't, we don't want them to be. Um, we wish they weren't. But fears are a big thing, whether it's fear of the unknown, fear of the known, or simply fear of some surprise that we don't know what's going to happen. Um, I want you to turn with me to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two. We're going to look at a man who had plenty to be afraid of, King Hezekiah. But don't be put off by the fact that he is a king and you're not; that he's in the Bible and you're not; that he was in Jerusalem and you're in Frisco; that he was twenty-seven hundred years ago and you're today; that he spoke Hebrew and you speak English. There's a whole lot that's different between King Hezekiah and you, but there's a whole lot more that's similar. In fact, it's identical. 
you are in a position in which you are afraid. You're fearful of the future, of the unknown, of the known, of surprises. And King Hezekiah, what he dealt with and the way that he dealt with it can give us some great principles on how to deal with the fear that you brought with you. The fear that's sitting beside you. And I don't mean your spouse or something. I mean the, the, the fear that you have that is so close, maybe you've carried with you for years. Second Chronicles 32, let's read the first verse and then we'll sort of set the stage, the context of what's going on. Second Chronicles 32, after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. So King Sennacherib, he is an Assyrian king and you remember, uh, if you think through just biblically, the chronology of where we are in, in, um, in Israel's history, the, uh, the nation has divided. There is a northern kingdom, there's a southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom by this time has actually been exiled. About 20 years earlier, the, in 722, Assyria came in and took the northern kingdom away to Assyria. And so now... There have been a number of refugees from the north who weren't exiled, who maybe saw it coming and they decided, boy, let's go south. And they headed south to the, to the kingdom of Judah. And so the kingdom of Judah is much larger than it was during the divided kingdom. So now that only Judah is left. Sennacherib came and has invaded. Has invaded. And it says, after these acts of faithfulness, now, you think in Old Testament terms, typically when a king is faithful like Hezekiah was, you don't have invading armies. You don't have these, these things happening. Well, Second Chronicles, in fact, First and Second Chronicles, they have a different purpose than First and Second Kings. If you ever you probably noticed that Kings and Chronicles deal with a lot of the same events, and so, in fact, I even had one guy ask me one time, you know what, he said something like, well, I'm not reading the Chronicles because I've already read Kings. And I just thought, well, you know, have you read all of the Gospels too? I mean, they have different, they talk about the same events, but they have different purposes. First and Second Kings really camps on a lot of the negative parts of the Kings because basically they're books justifying the exile. Why did the exile happen? Well, First and Second Kings tell you why they happened because they did a lot of unfaithful things. But Chronicles, uh, First and Second Chronicles, originally one book, was written to the returning people coming back. It was more emphasizing the faithfulness of the kings, and particularly of the southern kingdom of Judah, and particularly of the kings that had a passion for the temple, because the returning exiles would rebuild the temple. So there was a different emphasis. All of this to say, the negative part of why this invasion occurred has been left out of Chronicles. If we were to turn back to 2 Kings, we would read what happened. Um, there was, a, there was a, a system, maybe you could call it a bully system, in the ancient days. And here's how it worked. One nation would invade another nation and demand tribute. 
meaning annually you would pay a bunch of money or you'd have to export a bunch of things, but you basically have to give them something of value. If you didn't pay your tribute, they would come and kill you. This is how the, the bully system worked. Well, Assyria was the bully of the day. It was the dominating world power, and they, they marched over everything. Like I said, they'd already taken out the northern kingdom, and they threatened that same uh, bully system with the southern kingdom, but Hezekiah, at a point of strength, had said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to submit to this Assyrian bully. I'm going to trust the Lord fully. And the Assyrian bully says, oh yeah? Well, I'm going to come in and, and invade Judah. And in a moment of weakness, Hezekiah, this is what is left out of Chronicles, in a moment of weakness, Hezekiah tells the Assyrian king, I did wrong. I should have obeyed you. And he takes much of the riches from the temple and sends it, hoping that this will appease Sennacherib. But the bad news is it didn't. Sennacherib came and decided, you know, while we're here, we might as well go sack Jerusalem. And so that's what happens. That's, where, that's sort of the scene that's set up as we keep going now in verse 2. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? Now, we just finished verse 4. Um, before we look at verse 5, look at verse 30. Look down at verse 30, because it relates to what we just read. Verse 30 says, It was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. So, verses 2 through 4, they basically said, Look, Sennacherib's coming to Jerusalem, and we, we don't want him to come and find our abundant water source. Let me show you a couple of photographs. <coughs> or drawings. Um, this is basically what Jerusalem looked like in the time of Solomon and in the kings that reigned after Solomon and just up to the time of Hezekiah. The part there at the bottom is called the city of David and you can see the temple mount above it with all the smoke and the, the temple there. The problem with Jerusalem geographically is that the water source was in that valley on the right. The valley on the right is called the Kidron Valley. The water source of the Gihon Spring wasn't in the city itself. It was outside the city in the valley. And the Lord designed the geography of Jerusalem, <clears throat> and basically this was a liability to Jerusalem. And so if you look at this next picture here, you can see <coughs> the Gihon Spring there in the, in the valley. And so what Hezekiah did, you can see the, um, that channel or this blue, let's see, does my cursor show up? It doesn't. Okay, well, that's fine. You can see the Gihon Spring and that blue line that goes all the way down to the pool called the Siloam Pool. And here's kind of a cutaway of the, uh, of the mountain. What they did is they, they dug from the source of the Gihon Spring through the bedrock of the mountain 
and rechanneled the water from the Kidron Valley to the whole other side of the uh, of the city of David. <coughs> and so then they hid the fact that the springs were on the outside. So when the Assyrians came, there was no water uh, for the Assyrians to, to block, and all the water was inside at the Pool of Siloam. This uh, this channel is called Hezekiah's Tunnel, and if you've been to Jerusalem, you may have walked through it. Here's me walking through it. You can see that they still got water flowing through it. The Gihon Spring is still, still flowing through it. So that's, that's what, um, here you have 700, 700 B.C., so like 2,700 years ago, Hezekiah diverted this water and for this particular siege of Sennacherib. That's the, that's the context, and that's what they were doing to make this happen. Thank you very much, Rex. Doc, Dr. Rex knows just what I need. I won't say anything about that. So if your water's outside the city, they brought it inside the city, and that's exactly how Hezekiah did it. Not only did they take care of the water source, but look, up, look what else they did. Verse 5. And he took courage and rebuilt the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it and built another outside wall and strengthened the Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in great number. Now you saw the, uh, the city originally. It was just that slender city. But I mentioned all the refugees that had come down. The population of Jerusalem had greatly expanded in the 20 years prior to this historical event. And so what Hezekiah did, you can see I put an arrow around this wall. This wall goes all the way around the western hill. And it it basically more than doubled the size of Jerusalem. And I have the arrow pointing to a spot in the wall. It's called the broad wall that you can go to Jerusalem and see today. See this arrow points down to this part of this wall that was discovered in the, in the uh, Jewish quarter. If you were to go there today, you would see this wall. It's called the Broad Wall. So it's wonderful to be able to, be able to interact with the, uh, with the archaeology of the Bible there in Jerusalem. So they have water, they have the wall to protect them, and they have weapons. But now they're going to deal with the most important aspect of their defense. Look at verse 6. He appointed military officers over the people and gathered them to him in the square of the city gate and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, look at these words, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one who is with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Aren't those great words? Great words. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria. Hezekiah says, we've got walls, we've got water, we've got weapons, But our ultimate victory, our ultimate security is beyond that. The enemy has that. We have what they don't have. We have the Lord to fight our battles. 
Okay, keep, keep reading. Verse 9. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem while he was besieging Lachish with all his forces with him against Hezekiah, king of Judah, and against all Judah who were at Jerusalem. And here's what he said. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? Is not Hezekiah misleading you to give to give yourselves over to die by hunger and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. Has not this same Hezekiah taken away the high places and his altars, and said to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before one altar, and on it you shall burn incense. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the lands, were the gods of any of the nations of the lands able to deliver at all, able at all to deliver their land from my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations, which my fathers utterly destroyed, who could deliver this people out of my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this, and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? And look at verse 19. They spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the, as of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. Those are some pretty strong words from this Assyrian bully. It says that after he was besieging, in verse 9, besieging Lachish. Lachish was a major city in Judah. It was, uh, if you've got a map of uh, Israel, you might find it on there. Basically, it's southwest of, of Jerusalem. And it was, it basically guarded one of the major access points up to Jerusalem. And so the king of Assyria had to take out Lachish in order to get up to Jerusalem. And so while he was besieging Lachish, he went ahead and sent messengers up to Jerusalem to go ahead and try to discourage them. Lachish was a major city. Um, In fact, here's a picture of it, of the tell. It's still there. You can go and look at the uh, ruins. And... The victory that um, Sennacherib had at Lachish was significant. In fact, he was so proud of it that he chiseled on the palace walls of his, uh, of his palace at Nineveh a victory, that basically a depiction of the battle. And you can go to the British Museum today. You can see here I am looking at the, re- the relief of uh, Lachish reliefs with my two daughters. You can tell they're very interested in what we're doing. <clears throat> but these reliefs, if you look at kind of a close-up of it, you can see, you know, uh, guys with arrows and, you know, siege ramp with, uh, you know, the little pick pickaxe that pokes at the walls. This victory was so significant that the king of Assyria lined his palace with this victory. Hezekiah knew this. Lachish was a great city. And for Sennacherib to take out Lachish 
and then basically say Jerusalem is next, this would be this would be terrifying, not only to him as a king, but to all the people who were listening to these Assyrian bullies as well. We read, it says, after this, Sennacherib sent this message, and after Hezekiah and the people determined to rely on God, then the enemy shows up to discourage. It's the same in our lives. After you make a commitment to walk with Christ, after you decide, you know what, we're going to devote our marriage or our children, or I remember um, shortly after I was ordained many years ago, uh, Kathy said it was almost like, you know, after they said amen, that the, that the spiritual challenge, you know, entered our lives. Um, when you enter the Lord's work, you are in a battlefield. You're not... Um, you're kind of cruising along with the enemy until you're going against the enemy. And as soon as you go against the enemy, then he shows up. And one of his greatest tactics against you is not a full frontal assault, but it's a tactic of words. It's a tactic of discouragement. And what, what are the words? Often, they're facts, aren't they? They're facts. What are the facts? The facts were Assyria has never lost. This was a fact. Um, the gods of other nations haven't helped the other nations. This was a fact. Lachish would soon fall. This was a fact. Now let's be honest. These were things that Hezekiah couldn't sidestep. They were realities. They were facts. But they were not all the facts. Hezekiah knew that there is more than simply these realities. Look at verse 20, the very next verse. Hezekiah, but King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. Wow, King Hezekiah and Isaiah. How'd you like to have Isaiah the prophet as your prayer partner? Wouldn't that be great? Hey, Isaiah, come on over. I'd like us to pray about something. Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed this. And if you read the account in 2 Kings, if you just find the same account in 2 Kings, it's also in Isaiah. This was such a significant event that these events are, are detailed in Isaiah as well as here in 2 Chronicles. But in, in 2 Kings, it's actually much, there's much more detail. It talks about what's in the letter that Hezekiah and Isaiah went and they spread out the letter before the Lord in the temple and it goes into their prayer. There's much more detail there. But here's a great principle that you can apply from this, that whatever it is that you are afraid of, for Hezekiah it was an Assyrian bully. For you it might be something else. Whatever it is, think about Hezekiah's words when he said, that his security lies with the Lord and not with the arm of flesh. We typically tend to rush to the arm of flesh or to human reasoning, to human solutions, whenever it is we're struggling with something. And when we look at the facts, we tend to only look at the facts that are human, as opposed to what Hezekiah said, look at the facts that go beyond the facts that you see. Look at the facts that you can't see. 
With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. The world is going to give you just the facts. In fact, you've already heard some of them this week. You don't have the money. The doctor's report is grim. Time is running out. Things have never changed before in this situation. Why do you think they would ever change in the future? Facing the facts, this is what we are told to do. Whether it's fear of the unknown, fear of the known, maybe it's finances, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your children's future. Don't know. What it is, what is it that's got you fearful? But let me ask you this. Have you responded like Hezekiah and Isaiah responded? Have you prayed about this as much as you've worried about it? Have you prayed about it as much as you've worried about it? You see, facing the facts really isn't our problem. It's that we don't face all the facts. God has facts as well for us to factor into our situation. It's just that God's facts require faith. That's the challenge. God's got facts too. Just as real as the facts that you see But God's facts require faith, and that is the challenge, because you can't see them. So what happened? Look at the very next verse, a couple of verses, 21 and 22. The Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. I don't know if you've got a cross-reference there, but you might jot in your margin if you don't. 2 Kings 19.35. 2 Kings 19.35 tells us that the angel of the Lord went through the camp and slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian warriors. 185,000. And so uh, the Assyrians get up and go home. They, just, they decide we're whipped. Now, we've got this record in the Hebrew text, but the Assyrians also had a record of this siege. If you go to the Israel Museum today, well, actually, you wouldn't have to go to Israel. You could go to Chicago. They've got one there. There are three prisms called the Sennacherib prism. He actually made three of them. One's in Chicago, one's in the British Museum, and one's in the Israel Museum. This one is in the Israel Museum. And basically, Sennacherib's prism talks about, it's basically his boasting record of uh, all he did during this campaign. And he goes through and he talks about all the different cities that he sacked. And here's what he wrote about his siege of Jerusalem. He said this, As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them. Himself, I made prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. You see, spin politics is nothing new, (laughs) is it? This was true, but it wasn't all the facts. All the facts were he forgot to leave out the fact that he woke up one day and all of his army was laying there dead. 
and they didn't have any idea how it happened. He doesn't say how he conquered it. And notice he doesn't say he conquered Jerusalem. The best he could do is that he surrounded it and hemmed in Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. He didn't conquer Jerusalem. The Lord didn't allow him to do it. Um, I read about a woman uh, some years ago who, from Arkansas. She was sitting in her car on a hot summer day, and she heard a loud bang beside her, and she felt a sharp pain in the back of her head. And she reached back there, and a person walked by the car and saw her holding her hands behind her head, and she was crying, clearly in pain. And the, the, late, the person said, are you okay, to this lady? And she said, I've been shot, and I'm holding my brains in my head. Well, it turns out what had happened is the heat had popped one of her Pillsbury dough things. And it hit her in the back of the head, and the dough was there, and she thought that was her brain, so she was holding it in. It's a true story, unfortunately. And, you know, you want to just say, you're, you're really lucky that, well, you don't want to be unkind, but you're really lucky that what you have of a brain wasn't coming out. There's no way that that could be happening. But I read that and thought, you know, we're fearful of the craziest things, aren't we? What's the, what's the, what are the odds that that was really happening? And once, once the reality of what happened, um, she probably was very embarrassed. Have you ever been embarrassed about something that you were afraid that was going to happen and, and ended up being a dud? Um, you know, I can't think of a, of a great example personally, but I'm sure Kathy can. But I won't, but please don't share anything. But you know, something that you're afraid of, and it comes to nothing. Maybe it's a conversation that you really don't want to have, and it ends up being just fine. Or you, you know you've got to go and talk to your boss about something, and you think, oh man, this isn't going to go well. It ends up going just fine. Or, you know, another situation. You're really fearful that it's not going to go well. And you know what? It was okay. I think most, most of the things, I've, I've thought through this, most of the things that I fear when they end up coming to that point are not nearly as bad as what I feared. Uh, it's certainly not. Uh, like this lady with the, Pils the Pillsbury thing. Have you ever been embarrassed about what you're afraid of? After God showed himself faithful here to Hezekiah, you just, sometimes you just wonder, why, why did I ever doubt the Lord? When he shows himself faithful, you think, why did I ever doubt him? But let me turn it on it the other side of the coin for a second, and what about when it isn't a happy ending? Because, you know, this is a great story, but this isn't always how it ends up. The angel of the Lord didn't always show up. Sometimes Lachish falls. I mean, it was great for Jerusalem, but it wasn't that great for Lachish. Sometimes in your life, things don't always go well, and you've prayed about it. Even having Isaiah there may not have made a difference. What about when it isn't a happy ending? Um, 
Turn to Daniel just for a second. I want to show you a couple of verses there. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. What do you do when it isn't a happy ending? What about when you really do lose your job? Or your child really does get sick? Or when tragedy really does hit your family? When God doesn't step in like you'd hoped he would? Daniel chapter 3. This is the scenario of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're about to be uh, tossed into the fiery furnace. You know that story. But look at their words just before they're hurled into the flames. Verse 17 and 18. They say, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what about when it isn't a happy ending? Well, let me ask you this question. Who says this is the end? You may have had a tragedy in your life that wasn't a happy ending. But you know, this isn't the ending. It's not over. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to say, you know, it really doesn't matter whether or not you throw us into the fire because we're going to follow God. And when I say this isn't the ending, think about Jesus. Jesus wasn't vindicated prior to the crucifixion and resurrection. It took his death and resurrection for him to be vindicated. And ultimately, it's going to take his second coming for him to be vindicated worldwide. Um, But again, I emphasize that. It took his death. That wasn't a happy ending. But that wasn't the ending. And even his resurrection, as great as that is, isn't the ultimate ending. His vindication is coming in the future, and so is yours. So even if the Lord doesn't step in and wipe out 185,000 Assyrians, even if the Lord doesn't step in and take you out of the fiery furnace, even if you are thrown into the furnace and burn up, it's not the end. Because even our crucified Lord looked forward to the day when he would be resurrected, ascended, and ultimately would come again to rule the world. The Assyrians' defeat is sort of reflects God's final triumph in your life. So let me just leave you with this. Our faith is based on fact. It's not based on, based on wishful thinking. We know that. We believe what is true. When, these hard facts bring, when the hard facts bring fear in your life, remember that your strength, as Hezekiah said, lies in the strength of the Lord your God and not in the arm of flesh. It's the same, of, the same is true of us. The Apostle Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is a spiritual battle that goes beyond the physical. And we have to keep that in mind as we're going out through our day. 
So the, the world is going to give you the facts. The devil is going to try to give you the facts. But there are more facts than that. There are facts that require faith. Let me give you just a few of them. And I'm going to leave these up here. Um, you're welcome to jot them down or just meditate on them. But here's some biblical facts to factor into your fears. Even if what you're afraid of is true, this is also true. You will not die until it is God's time for you. You don't have to fear death. You're not going to die until it's God's time for you. Job 14.5 and Psalm 139.16 teaches this. Second, God's provision or his lack of provision in your life has your good in mind. Deuteronomy 8.3 and Philippians 4.19. And finally, God will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13.5. These are facts, just as real as the facts that you see that seem so compelling. It's just that these facts require faith. These facts require faith. So like Hezekiah did, uh, pray God's promises. Affirm what you know to be true. Affirm the facts that go beyond the facts you see to the facts that are unseen because our faith has more facts behind it, more truth behind it than all the bad news that you're going to hear today. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for King Hezekiah, a man just like us, weak, frail, eagerly desiring to please you and to walk with you, and yet faltering at times, capitulating to the world's demands and suffering the fallout of it. We're like that, aren't we? We struggle with those same fears And uh, for him, it was an Assyrian. For us, it takes many forms. But I thank you for the lesson that you gave, uh, that you made clear in Hezekiah's day, that is a timeless principle that we also can apply, that we need to not be fearful, that we need to not be dismayed because of what we see. With the world is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. And Father, we know that even if you don't step in and stop what it is we're fearing. We know that this is not the end. That just like our Lord Jesus, his crucifixion was not the end. It was merely the beginning, a beginning of a great eternity. And we know the same is true of us. So even if you don't step in, Lord, we know that our resurrection will give the ultimate vindication and that somehow, some way, it will all be worth it and we will shake our head in agreement with your plan, though now we shake our head side to side wondering at times, God, what are you up to? Give us strength today with the facts that go beyond what we see to the facts that we can believe, the facts that require faith. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.